Hello, and thank you for tuning in. This podcast is a part of a Bible study series led by our local retired pastor, Dr. Dan Stinson, exploring the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and six common themes found within. This week, we focus on the theme, the centrality of love. So today, we're going to look at the whole concept for John's letters, that love is central to the Christian community. And then he does four things within those three, God, three epistles. Love is doing the will of God. Love requires action. Love is reflective and responsive. Love is for the stranger as well as for the friend. And we'll talk more about each of those as we go through the morning. <clears throat> Love is doing the will of God. How does that show up? It's in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in it. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. The world is its desires are passing away. But those who do the will of God will live forever. And then in 2 John verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning. You must walk in it. How do we know what the will of God is? We can't understand John's John's letters without understanding where John is coming from when it comes to the word love. And the word will of God. Uh, I always turn to Micah chapter 6. Over the years as a pastor, I've had lots of people ask me, how do I know the will of God? And I always refer them to Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And I turn to that because it's so simple. Those are the three things that, for me, fulfill the will of God. Um, Jesus said it differently. Remember, Jesus was asked by the Pharisee, the lawyer one day, of all the 631 laws... Which one is the most important? Now, first of all, look at the trap the lawyer is setting for Jesus. How can anybody choose one out of 631 and say, this is it? What's Jesus' response? You've heard it said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. You do those two things, he says, and you have fulfilled all of the commandments. All 361. Very simple. Love is central. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So John is not giving a new way of looking at the faith. John is clarifying in succinct terms what it means to be a Christian community. It means that love dominates. Love is central. Now, the problem is we have a hard time making the distinction between like and love in our culture. For me, like is an emotion. I like black cherry ice cream. I don't like peach ice cream. That's an emotion. It's something that feel inside. I just don't like it. 
Whereas love is an action. An action that says this. And for me, love is defined very simply. It means when Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, it means I will not do anything to deliberately hurt you, even if I don't like you. But I will do everything I can do to help you, even though I don't like you. Can you see the difference between like and love in that? Let's talk about that. How's how does that resonate with you? What do you think that means? What am I trying to say? Do. Do something. Do something. So love is an action. It's, it's something that you participate in, not just something you feel. You know. uh, otherwise, we become the Charlie Brown character. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. We all have people we can't stand to be around. We all have somebody who just grates on us the wrong way. Um, does that mean we can't love them? Or do we just have to live with the fact that we don't like them? Or we just don't like their actions or their wording or whatever we're talking about. So how does that apply to a congregation, to the church, to the people who are receiving John's letter. There's a lot of division within the church. Remember last week we talked about the, the docetists and those who are separating from the main body of the church. How do you like them? How do you love them? You can never come to like their doctrine. You can never come to love their theology. But it doesn't mean you have to not love them because of the different theology. <clears throat> I remember during the situation when Rod had his issues, and I remember saying at one of the Thursday night meetings, we have to learn to disagree without being disagreeable. And that's what love is. That's how it operates in the church, says John. <coughs> Does that make sense? And you notice the love starts not with man to man, woman to woman, but humanity to God, God to humanity. Love the Lord your God, and then your neighbor as yourself. And that's, again, not unique to Jesus. Look at the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments instructs us on how to love God. The last six commandments instructs us on how to be a community, how to love each other in community. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, etc. Why don't you do those things? Because it breaks the unity of the group. It fractions the whole. Right? In other words, it's not loving. You may dislike somebody who committed one of those mortal sins or whatever term you want to use, but that does not give you license to not love them. So love then, fundamentally for John, is doing the will of God. That if you love God and you love your fellow human being, you are already doing the will of God. Now, that is eye-popping for those who heard that expressed by Jesus and reading it by John. Because remember, the early Christians grew out of the Jewish faith, which of its day was more focused on rules and regulations than it was on relationships. And the early church rejected not the rules, but the overemphasis on the rules because they could see the relationships were not working out the way they should. Uh, <clears throat> Shall I bow before God? Shall I follow all the things that he wants? Or do I simply love God, walk humbly, do justice, love kindness? Right? Okay. Enough said. 
That means love requires action. Sometimes action can be non-action, such as just being quiet, not responding, not getting into an argument that is going nowhere, not opening the door to the vitriol of society, but just saying a silent prayer and saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they say. That's action. But at other times, action demands that you confront and say, I can't accept that. I love you, but I can't accept what you are saying. It, it distresses me. It concerns me. So I'm asking you politely not to use that language again, not to refer to people that way again, at least in conversation with me. Okay? That's action. Or picking up a sign and walking in protest because something has to change. Um, or you be the first one to go to somebody's aid that everybody else is ignoring. That's action. Uh, <clears throat> I, I remember years ago, a good 25, 30 years ago at annual conference, there was a woman who I knew quite well from a neighboring church, United Methodist. She felt, and I believe it was genuine, a call to the Christian ministry as a United Methodist pastor. She happened to be gay. So she was forbidden. And the bishop at that time always had a service in which he invited all those who felt called to the ministry to come forward. When one person would get up, usually people who knew that individual, generally it was all men back then, would get up and walk with them. This particular woman stood up and there was nobody. And I got up and walked down with her. That's action. Was it the popular thing to do? No. Was it the right thing to do? Absolutely, in my mind. Who am I to tell somebody God hasn't called them? So sometimes love requires action that's unpopular. Uh, isn't that what he's referring to? Do not love the world or the things in it. That's in 1 John 2, 15. Sometimes you have to be unworldly, you know, to be godly. You just can't always tie the two together. There are times you have to say the rules, the conventions of society are secondary to doing the will of God. And that's not popular. This is a call to love doing the will of God rather than following the teachings and demands of society. Because society does not teach us what the gospel teaches us. We're taught in society to achieve something by becoming number one. And Jesus teaches, that's fine, but the first is going to be last, and the last is going to be first. Diametrically opposite each other. So John knows what he's talking about. He's saying to them, look at the world in which we are living. We're living in a Roman, a Greco-Roman world. We have rules and requirements that are so different than what our Hebrew faith teaches us. And now there's new religious group known as the Christians. John is saying to them, we know better. There's a different way of doing it, and you have to decide if you're willing to pay the price. Most folks in Christianity tend to believe that simply saying Jesus is my Lord makes our life easier. I think it's just the opposite. I think that's what Jesus meant when he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. The cross is something you carry that's not an easy burden. So to be part of a community there where love is central means you're always picking up a cross. Now, there are struggles, there are sufferings, and then there's the cross. There's a difference. A cross or a burden 
is something we accept voluntarily. Problems and struggles just simply come to us because we're human beings. We struggle with illness, we struggle with death, we struggle with poverty, we struggle with all the issues of our culture. But we voluntarily say, I will do that struggle in the midst of the centrality of love within the Christian setting. Does that make sense? So there are times when love requires action. So love requires more than words, more than emotions. The Hebraic concept of life and death is that those who follow God are alive. Those who do not are dead. That's what Jesus, I think, meant when he said, let the dead bury the dead. The dead would be those who are outside the faith. That is probably what Jesus meant, the non-believers, the non-members outside of your community. And then love is reflective and responsive. Again, John writes in 1 John chapter 4 this time, the first 12 verses, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, but by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in a flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Um, that, that's problematical, isn't it? It is for me, at least. Because at least the second part of it, what he's saying is, if you are not a Christian, you're not part of God's community. It's pretty exclusive. Um, Understanding the context in which that's being said, it's being said by somebody who is in the, the, this new religious expression called Christianity coming into being. And he's arguing more against the docetists who believe differently than the main part of the congregation. Uh, so his exclusion there is different than what this actually says. Uh, are non-Christians loved by God? Or does God only love Christians? What do you think? That's where the reflective and responsive comes in. What do you think? Okay, if God loves everybody, how can we have divisions then? Yeah, if God loves everyone, how can we put standards on you must believe this, that, or the other thing? That's always been an issue for me. Barbara and I have had many discussions over the years. I generally do not use creeds in worship. As Methodists, we sing our creeds. They're called hymns. My problem is when we use a creed publicly, we are unintentionally saying to newcomers in the faith, you have to believe this set of rules, this statement of faith, or you're not a Christian. That's not the intention of the creed, but that's the effect of the creed when it's said over and over and over again. Do you ever analyze any of the creeds that you grew up with? Do you ever analyze the Apostles' Creed? What does it mean? Are there things that you sort of wonder about when you say it? Or do you just simply say the words because everybody else is saying the words? Right? Yeah, very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Okay. That may have made sense in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century, but it makes very little sense in the 21st century. So why don't we change the creed? I think we do. I think the hymns say what we're thinking. Um. If you're a genuinely good person, and by good, you're selfless, you help others, what, what little you have, you share, but you're a Buddhist. What does God have to say about that? 
Someday I'll ask God. <laughs> but right now, I'm not getting the answers that I want. <laughs> this may sound heretical, but I always tell my students at the college, all religion is culturally based. Not faith, but religion. Religion is the expression. And it takes on the shape of the culture. So that most likely, if I had been born in India, probably would have been a Hindu. I happen to be born in a Western world. So my understanding, my encounter with God is reflected most within the Christian expression. I have friends who are Jewish. I have friends who are Muslim. That's the culture in which they grew up. That's how they understood God to be at work. And I've always maintained, if you can tell me exactly a definition of God and exactly how God works, then there is no God. Because the human mind can't comprehend what is infinite. So I leave that up to God. And I assume that if God can accept me as a flawed Christian, then certainly he can accept somebody who might be a less than flawed Hindu or a less than flawed Buddhist or whatever. I think most Christians have not taken the time to study the other religions. They always look for where the other group of people are different than us. Rather than trying to understand Islam or Judaism or some other religion, what do we do? We try and prove them wrong. Try and show them why we're right and they're not. As opposed to the scripture's admonition, to come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's sit down and listen to each other. Uh, for me, Christianity is what I understand to be the way in which I have encountered God in Christ. Somebody else may have done it differently. And I'll leave that up to God. Does that make sense? Um, I've always rebelled at people saying, are you converting people to Christianity? No. First of all, it's not up to me to convert. It's up to God. I can simply introduce them to the Jesus I know. I can just share with them how that has changed who I am. And then I accept the humanity of the other person. You know, there's a part of Hinduism that often goes overlooked. You know, we talk about it having two million gods. Uh, that's only partially true. The concept behind that is the reason there are so many is that God is so broad and deep, no one expression fully explains God. So each of these various gods have another piece of the puzzle of God. And Christianity is uh, more frugal. We have three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Uh, my Islamic friends have great difficulty with that. How can Allah be one and still be three? Right? It's a problem. Does that mean they are not right? No, it means that perhaps they and I have differences of interpretation of how God is at work through the world and through history. But I'm not about ready to reject them. As I am reflective, my response has been one of openness. You know, I've often said many of my Muslim friends put many of my Christian parishioners to shame when it comes to understanding how to love and how to be in the world, how to make love central. Okay? Are you with it? Can you follow that? So does that answer your question, or did it give you a political runaround answer? No, it was... Uh the answer I thought I was going to get. <laughs> How would you answer it? Um, well, I don't know. Um, well, now's the time to reflect and respond. It's a right? terrible waste of, of humanity that only one particular group that treats each other decently mm -hmm. is singled out for special salvation when there are lots of equally kind and, and decent people yeah. who have a different expression. It's reconciling that that's a difficult... Yeah. Mahatma Gandhi supposedly said something to this effect, and I believe it's fairly close. 
And he said, you know, I could have been a follower of your Jesus had it not been for the Christians I met. That's rough. Who were the Christians? The British occupiers. The ones who proclaimed Christ and kept them as chattel. Kept them as non-people. So if if we really reflect, by, by that I mean you're looking inwardly as well as outwardly, it raises some really serious questions for us about being community. Um, one, one observation I've made in every church I pastored, when it came to evangelizing the community, very, very few people on the committee said, let's go over to Section 8 housing and invite the people. The invitation is always extended to people like themselves or in a higher economic category. Never a downward request. It says an awful lot, to me at least. And as I reflected on that, I always had to work with that. Uh, I was in one church who were wonderful. They raised thousands of dollars a year uh, for missions above and beyond their apportionments. And one day they had a soup soup luncheon. And I walked in and I noticed that in the back room there was an old man, a homeless man, having a bowl of soup by himself. When he came in, he was different than anybody else. So somebody in that group who was serving the luncheon took him to a private room rather than have him soil the community with his presence. And they couldn't see the incongruity in that. How could you be raising money for missions by selling soup and then exclude one person because they're economically different than you are? They couldn't see that disconnect. Because I invited him to come and join us. And I got stairs, (laughs) bad ones. Um, So reflection on what love is, requires us to be responsive to the reflection. That once we see it differently, we have an obligation to behave differently. Once we understand the question, we can then begin to find the answers. Does that make sense? And that leads us into his fourth point, that love is for the stranger as well as for the friend. And we pick that up in John chapter, uh, uh, third John, verse five. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the friends, even though they are strangers to you. In other words, treat the strangers just like you would your friends. Strangers are loved by those who love God. John's message is in keeping with what we read in Exodus 23, verse nine. You shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Uh, In other words, God is telling the Israelites, look at your history. Remember where you came from. You were once excluded. Now you're included. Don't exclude. Include. Does that make sense? That's all part of love being central, as I understand it. Questions? Here's a question that's going to take us a while to answer. Do you see yourself as a resident or as an alien in this world? What do you think? That's hard. You're a resident of this world. Okay. Sandy, what do you think?
Okay. I'm not surprised. Can you share more? I am currently a resident. Could you be a resident alien? I don't know. I've never had these thoughts before. I know. That's why you have a class. Okay. <laughs> no. Don't we teach, don't we have a theology that says we're part of something beyond this world? We're part of the kingdom. And therefore, the kingdom comes before the world. It's exactly what John started out with, wasn't it? Don't be conformed to the things of this world. And Paul says that too. Because that's not where you live. You're an alien. In, you're a resident alien. You're living here. But you're also living in the kingdom. And the kingdom's rules are different than the world's rules. Heavy stuff. That's why I'm reasonably certain you were going to answer the way you did, because I know you well enough to know that for you, there's much more than just what we see here. You know, your, mu your music says that. my expiration date. <laughs> I see these things. Mine's coming up. <laughs> I see these things happening and I think mm. uh, I don't belong here. Yeah. Yeah. A longing for something beyond where you're at. Yeah. Uh, that, that's true. Um, I remember one of the exercises you have to do, at least I think it's still being done the same way, is when you feel the call to the ministry, you go before a committee and there's exercises, papers that you have to write. And one of them is to explain how you view yourself within the world setting. And I always go back to St. Augustine. Our souls are restless until we find rest in you, O oh God. That there's a restlessness about this world. That there's got to be something more. Now, many people interpret that to mean you have to wait to go to heaven. You know, I, I've changed my concept at that point to where heaven is now. You know, it's not a question of are we getting into heaven? The question for me is do we know heaven's gotten into us? Do we know we're part of the kingdom now? Do we know that we don't have to wait to be loved fully by God? We have to wait to leave this portion of God's world. But we're still in God's presence. Does that make sense? This is my father's world. Not Caesar's, not my neighbor's, not my political parties, but God's. And we're expected to be good stewards of his world while we're here. Precisely. I, I kind of take the resident view that I might be the landlord. He owns it, but yeah, you're the, the building super. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think there's biblical basis for that. You know, uh, I think we're called to be stewards. I think we have an obligation, and I think the church has been remiss by not speaking more about the ecological injustices taking place. There's something just fundamentally unsound theologically about saying it's okay to strip the land in order for somebody to make profit. There's something fundamentally unsound about polluting the waters so that somebody else can make a profit. That's just not right, you know. But the world says it's okay. So yeah, we have a problem there. Yep. And I don't think politicians are the ones who are going to solve the problem. I think people of all faiths are the ones who are going to solve the problem. The ones who come together and say, this is bigger than any political system. This affects all of us.
So as you reflect, we become responsive to more than just theology. We get involved in the whole creation. Love for the stranger as well as for the friend. Is that not one of our biggest issues today? You know, most churches really do well loving each other. But when it comes to a person outside the four walls of that building, it's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different way of looking at it. Am I wrong? Am I right? Am I partially right? Do you see what I see type thing? You know, that, uh, it's kind of scary. And it's not new. If you go back and read history, what we're doing now is not new. We just have more modern conveniences to spout off our garbage that before used to take longer to get around. Now we get it instantly. Otherwise, we'd have to say that there was never evil in the world before the modern era, and that's just not true. History tells us that. What could be more evil than the Inquisition, the Crusades, or clear back sending your soldiers out from the Roman Empire to kill all the babies, the male babies, two years and younger? Evil exists. Question is, can love be central enough to overcome that evil? And for me, isn't that the role of the church, is to demonstrate the centrality of love? Now, here's a problem that we have, and that is most people think if you love, you can't confront, you can't condemn, you can't speak out in a negative way. But I think love is something where you are able to be honestly saying to the person, I love you, but I sure don't like what you're doing. Because your actions have consequences not only for you, but for the whole body. Paul says, if one part suffers, we all suffer. And we know that. Intuitively, we know that. Remember growing up with don't embarrass the family? Right? I grew up with that. You don't do anything outside the house that's going to bring shame to your family inside the house. And that, that applies, I think, to the church. I have friends, I have family members who have absolutely no use for the church because they've seen so much of the phoniness within it. The hypocrisy of saying one thing and doing something else. Not easy to deal with, other than by honesty and saying, you're right, the church has been wrong. God hasn't been wrong, but God's people sure have been. I found in my teaching experiences that the vast majority of students were not anti-faith. They were anti-hypocrisy of the institutions. Where the church says one thing and does something else. Where... and. When you look at the history of even United Methodism, we split over the race issue in the 1840s. We had the Methodist Episcopal North, and we had the Methodist Episcopal South. It was strictly over slavery. So fracturing in the church is not new. The question is, can we redeem the church with love being central? Can we learn to say, You're accepted even if we don't agree with you. Do we have to have it my way or the highway? And and that's hard. At the Albion Church, they had two women. One was very active in local Republican politics. The other was very involved in Democratic politics. And every November, those two served as the greeters in the church so that people could see that the love of God, the love of humanity, exceeded by far the love of party. They were both very much involved in party leaders. And that made a huge and beautiful statement. Uh, 
I remember Ted Kennedy's funeral. I don't know if any of you watched that funeral or not. And I believe it was his son, Patrick, who said, I was always confused and bewildered by my father's ability to work with Republicans, you know, being a, quote, a liberal Democrat. And he said, my father just said to me, son, Democrats and Republicans both love their country. Methodists and non-Methodists love the church. Liberals and conservatives love God. Radicals and traditionalists love Christ. The stranger. And I maintain that there's more strangers in the congregation than there are members. How much do you really know about the person sitting in the pew with you? Now, of course, you do because you sit with people you've known for years, right? But what about the person on the other aisle, across the aisle, that you don't see? You follow him, what I'm getting at? The church has to do its own work to make love being central. What opportunities do you have to really get to know people other than the people that immediately are around you? Right. So you don't tend to sit in the same well, spot. That's why you have subgroups in the <coughs> church so you can get to know them. Bible studies, women's groups, men's groups, so that you have an opportunity to be involved with mission or whatever you feel called to do. Here's my theory. And I preached a whole sermon on it several times. Jesus loved your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the problem. People I've worked with don't love themselves. They see their own flaws. They see their own limitations. And so they project it on to other people. But if we truly accept ourself as limited in ability, as able to do some things better than others, but so too is the other person that I don't even know yet, how would that change? What would that do for us? We do love the people the way we love ourselves, incompletely. We tend to project onto the other person our own sins. We, we judge them by the way we would do it. But we don't know what their circumstances were forcing them to that issue, to make that decision, whatever that decision was. Again, an ethicist would probably disagree with me, but I'll stand by it. I've always maintained when people come in for counseling and they're struggling with something, and they had to make a decision. I've always come back and said, no decision made in love is ever wrong. It may not be the decision I will make, but I'm not making it you are. Centrality of love, that's what is the difference. Right? How often have you heard in any congregation you belong to Arguments about something that the board decided to do that you don't think was right. They shouldn't do that. That's not the way I would have voted, right? You've heard it. Women's groups, men's groups, they all do it. As opposed to stepping back and saying, I trust that God was working in their decision-making as God is working in my decision-making. And I don't necessarily understand it. I don't necessarily agree with it. But... I'm not the leader they are. Have I always agreed with bishops? No. Have I always agreed with district superintendents? No. That's not the issue. Do I love them enough to accept the fact that they're allowed to be different and make different decisions for themselves and for their own life? That's hard. That's not easy. It's one of the hardest things I know how to do. 
is to accept other people for the way in which they do things. Now, don't get me wrong. I will argue tooth and nail on a political issue, on a theological point of view. But that's just to help me reflect so that I can respond better. It's not to prove them wrong, but it's so that I might grow. Maybe I can see their side of it better that way. Whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, we all have those times in which we just can't see eye to eye. Do you walk away and say, forget you? <laughs> or do you say, I love you in spite of it? Or maybe because of it? We're different. And I would even raise the question, are you willing to grant that the other person's uniqueness is just as important as your own uniqueness? We're all unique in one way or another. We all have gifts and talents that somebody else doesn't have. even in the same family. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I remember, vividly remember, and it's been 50 years now, when my father died. You know, I was sharing with what we all do, share with your siblings, you know, the things you remember about your dad. And I was sharing them, and my older brothers looked at me as if I was talking in a different language. Dad was like that with you? He says, yeah, just keep in mind, we grew up in the same house. All 10 of us, we all grew up together. But when you were that my age at that point in life, dad was working three jobs to put food on the table. By the time I reached that age, most of you were out of the house already. So dad and I had more time for each other. We did things together that he couldn't do with you. Did he love you any less? No. He just demonstrated his love differently because the demands of the day were there. They were more pressing. But every house has that. Right? You and your sisters. Very definitely different relationships, right? Absolutely. Same family. Parents loved you both the same way. But you Yeah, absolutely. If I am the same parent that I was 52 years ago, shame on me. You know, I've lived long enough now that I believe that God got it wrong. He should have made his grandparents first so we know how to raise the kids and not worry about them so much. <laughs> right? Anybody who's a grandparent know what I'm talking about. But that's where this whole idea of love being reflective so that we can respond better. Don't be afraid of it. Trying to remember who it was, one of the philosophers, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined faith is not worth living, not worth having. Why do you believe what you believe? And if you still believe and you still see God the way you saw God when you were seven and eight, I challenge you to take a new look at that. It's like that old saying, if God seems far away, who moved? <laughs> right? Uh, we can build on what we knew about God at 7 and 8. And some of it comes back when we're in our 70s and 80s, and we say, yeah, that's still true. It's manifested itself differently, but it's still true. Little painted chairs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's how I understand love to be central in John's writings and central for the Christian community. Beset with all kinds of issues, all kinds of pressures, all types of issues that uh, we currently face as our own Christian communities. Um, here's one that will blow your socks off. We have to remember God is not an American. God is not Democrat. God is not Republican. God is not independent. God is not a Westerner. 
God is not white. God is not black. Right? And I just now as I'm saying that, I wish I had the picture of it for you, but I have a slide of a church in Africa, in Central Africa, in Zaire. Well, it's now Democratic Republic of the Congo. But they have a picture, a huge stained glass window right up front of the creation story. It's the hands of God and the face of God. And what you see is the artist had to decide, this is a church in Africa. What color do you make the hands of God? What would you think? If you were living in Africa, what colors would you make the hand of God? No. They didn't make him white either. They made it translucent so that as the sun moved across the sky, the hands constantly changed colors. That God was all colors, not just one. That said an awful lot. Right? What do we have? We have pictures of a white Jesus. And Jesus never was white. He was not blue-eyed and blonde hair. He probably looked much closer to Yasser Arafat than anybody else. But our images come out of the Middle Ages from the great artists. One of the real shocking things is if you go into the Church of All Nations in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, uh, they have different representations of Jesus from all around the world. And there's a Japanese Madonna that just absolutely caught my attention. There was floor-to-ceiling high, made of mother of pearl in a kimono. That was Jesus. There was a black Jesus. There were all the other Jesus. Different ways to see him. When you can see that, then you know love is central. That if you can define and, and make God in your own image, then that's no longer God. You can perceive God in your own image, but we are made in the image of God, which transcends color, race, culture, politics, etc. Right? That's it. That's what I think the Epistle of John's third and second thing is all about. Um, next week, we're going to expand on that because he talks about fellowship with God, the concept of koinonia. Again, just reread 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and see if you can find concepts of koinonia, of fellowship with God. All right? Go in peace and enjoy the rest of your day.